Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the lead pastor at New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington, and welcome to our teaching ministry. This is number 30-something of our series through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and today we're going to be looking at um, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. I think the title in the Storybook Bible is Filled Full. Before we do that, I just wanted to remind you that we are meeting in person, even now, probably as you are watching this, and we'd love to have you come out. We're in phase two, which means we have more music, that kind of thing. So if, you, if and when you're ready, please come out. Before we jump into the sermon, I thought I would lead us through a confession of sin. It's the same one we're using in worship today, and you can find that in the description below if you'd like to follow along. So let us pray together. We thank you, dear God, that we have learned not to begin faith by our own efforts, nor attempt to destroy our sins with our own repentance. We might do this before other people and be acceptable to the world and its judges, but with you, O God, there is an eternal wrath which we cannot satisfy, and before it we would despair. Therefore we thank you that another has seized and carried our sins and has made atonement for them. With joy we wish to believe this, but we cannot believe it by ourselves. We cannot comprehend it as we ought. Lord, lead us, help us. Give us the power and grace to believe. Amen. At this point in the service, I would give you the opportunity to confess your sins silently. However, since we're virtual, I will extend to you even now the assurance of pardon. If you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, know that he is faithful and just to forgive them. He takes your sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west, and he will never ever hold them against you. It's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to say to those of you who have trusted Jesus, know that your sins are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So with that said, let's jump right into our text. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 4 verses 30 through 44. Hear the word of God. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit in groups on green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that we would see Jesus today and we would be satisfied with him. Be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So to this point, in the Gospel of Mark, at least, Jesus has had some, some wins and he's had some losses. Now, by way of wins, what, what do we mean by wins? Well, you remember he, he healed Bernice, this woman who had uh, an issue of blood for 12 years. He raised um, Talitha, this little girl, 12-year-old girl from the dead. He calmed the storm. We looked at that passage last week. And he cast 2,000 demons out of this guy named Legion on, in, the, in the region of the Gennesaret. Now, those are wins. Now, what are some losses? Well, some losses that he had is, well, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. That's, I wouldn't consider that a win. Um, the Gentiles, remember, he, he cast the demons out of that guy in, in the area of Gennesaret, and they were afraid of him, and the Gentiles rejected him. They said, we want you to go. So that's two. And then strike three, his family thinks he's crazy. That's not a win. Right? His family, who he's grown up with his whole life, they think he's just out of his mind. And so today, we come to this, this next challenge. And this next challenge is sort of a smackdown. It's, it's like sort of man versus food. If you ever saw the, the I think it was on the History Channel, um, there was a reality show, Man versus Food. A guy named Adam Richmond, he did 59 episodes. And basically every single episode was some kind of major challenge. He would travel around the country. There were different restaurants that would have challenges like, can you eat a 72 ounce sirloin in 10 minutes? Or can you do this? Or can you, can you eat a hundred donuts in an hour? Whatever it was, one of, one of my favorites is he went to Beth's Cafe here in Seattle and they have a 12, om omelet, 12 egg omelet with like five pounds of hash browns. And you have to eat the whole thing. I think it's in an hour. And he ate the whole thing except one bite, and he just stopped. And people were going, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And he just couldn't. Even I was like, you put it in your mouth, you can throw up later. But he, he couldn't. He was beaten by food. In some sense, Jesus today has, has a challenge. Um, it's a man versus food. But instead of eating enough food for 50 people, Jesus has to provide enough food for 5,000 people. More specifically, 5,000 men plus however many women and, and children were there. So, um, and, and since I'm talking about food, uh, today's text is sort of like a sandwich. And Mark is very fond of doing that. And what I mean by that is he'll be telling a story and then he'll just insert what seems to be a random story in between the story that's actually taking place. So the story that's taking place, the bun, if you will, is that Jesus at the beginning of chapter six has sent the disciples out to cast out demons and to heal, right? So he sent them out to do the work of the ministry. And then we have a story about Herod killing John the Baptist. Herod has this feast at his palace. Ultimately, it ends up with him murdering John the Baptist. And then we're back to the story. The disciples come back and they tell Jesus what they've done and we're off to the races again. And so the, the, the buns, if you will, are the disciples being sent out and the disciples coming back. And in between, we have the story about Herod. Now, why is that? I think it's important because the story about Herod provides a contrast between two banquets and two types of leaders. Right, so Herod has a banquet and Jesus is going to have a banquet, if you will. Um, Herod's banquet is in a palace 
and it, the, the only people invited to the palace are the important people, the insiders, and the only reason they're invited there is to serve Herod's purposes, in other words, for political purposes. And Herod's feast, his, his banquet, culminates in death and, and loss. It's, it's just grim, right? That, that, that Salome asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter and he brings it and it's just, it's gross, right? Contrast that with Jesus' banquet, the one that we're going to look at today. In Jesus' banquet, it's outdoors. And, and not only is it outdoors, not in a castle, but it's, it's predominantly for the unimportant people. It's for the rabble. Anyone can come. All can come. With Herod, you got to be an insider. With Jesus, anybody can come. And it's not for his own selfish game, but in fact, he's giving. He, he, it's, it's to meet the needs of others. And while Herod's, Herod's feast culminated in uh, gloom and death and disgust, Jesus' feast culminates with, with wonder and satisfaction and the meeting of people's needs. So what were the people's needs here? Basically, we're going to look at three things that the, the crowd needed in John chapter 4, but also the, the three things that we need in our own lives. So what are the three things we need? We need a shepherd, we need sustenance, and we need satisfaction. At least we crave satisfaction. So we, we need a king, we need sustenance, and we need satisfaction. Those are your three points we're looking at today. So let's look first at our need for a shepherd. Look at verses 30 through 32. It says, And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had done and taught, they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And, when they, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So I love it, verse 30. Um, when these guys left at the beginning of the chapter, they were disciples. And when they come back, they're apostles, right? They're, they are ones who carry the message of Jesus. Mark wants us, I think, to see him that way. Um, and so the apostles come back, and we assume they're tired. We assume they need rest. We assume they're just, like, excited. They want to talk about what they've done. They don't want to, like, come back from this mission and start doing other things. They, they're, if you're, they're like me. You know, if you do something exciting, if you have some success, you want to come back. You want to talk to your wife. You want to talk to your friends. You want to do that. You don't want to just keep giving and giving and giving and giving. Jesus recognizes that. So he tells them, verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Because it says that they, they were so busy, they had no leisure even to eat. In other, in other words, that's how busy they were. And so Jesus says, hey, it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to pull yourselves away for a while to rest and to be with me before you re-engage in ministry again. And I think we miss sometimes that they actually went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Like, so they, they took action on that. It wasn't as if they came back and all the people were crowding and Jesus said, oh, the people are more important than you. He didn't say that. He said, you guys need rest. You need to be with me. We need to just hang out. And so they got in a boat and they left. But what they didn't count on was the sort of desperation of the people or the zeal of the people for Jesus. Look at verse 33. It says, now many of them, that's the people, saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, it's interesting here because 
if you don't know the context, you can almost insert anything you want in here. Like, why were these people running to meet Jesus? Why were they, they, they stalking them? In other words, it says that, that, that many of them saw where they were going, recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Well, they weren't sick and they weren't hurt if they were running all ahead from town to town to get there ahead of them. Why were they doing what they were doing? Well, this was the region of Galilee, and it was the region of Galilee particularly known to, to, to host the zealots. Remember, the zealots were the ones who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. The zealots were the ones who were like, stick it to the man. You know, they, they hated Herod. They wanted to, to, to find a, a leader who could take them and lead them in rebellion against the current government. Sounds familiar, right? Either way, they were running ahead because they thought Jesus might be the guy. In, in other words, we need a leader. And that guy, man, if he can like calm the raging seas, think what he could do to, to Herod or Caesar. They thought Jesus was going to be the man. He thought he, they was, he was going to be the one they needed. More specifically, they thought Jesus would be the shepherd that they needed. You see, um, the, one of the primary metaphors in the ancient Near East for a leaderless army, and in the, the Old Testament too, is sheep without a shepherd. We tend to think of shepherds in terms of uh, guys who visit the hospital or people who put their arm around you. There's a, there's a place for that. There is a role for that. But in the Bible and in the ancient Near East, the role of shepherd was much more um, robust, if you will. It was much more physical. They were looking for a shepherd, a leader for their army. And when Jesus got to the shore and saw them, that's exactly what he identified. Notice what he, he says. He said when he got to, went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And when he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they didn't have purpose. They didn't have vision and they didn't have someone to lead them. And so what did Jesus do? He began to teach them. He began to teach them, I'm guessing, about the kind of shepherd that they actually needed. And everyone, including us, needs a shepherd that basically fulfills three roles. They wanted a violent shepherd who would lead an uprising. And Jesus, I imagine, talked about the shepherd that they need. And what kind of shepherd did they need? The same one we need and the shepherd that fulfills three roles. The first is a priestly shepherd. What does a priestly shepherd do? Well, Moses was a shepherd of Israel. And what did Moses as a priestly shepherd do? He led Israel through the wilderness and he mediated between Israel and God. So as their shepherd, he not only led them, but he actually made sure they were being taken care of as it, with regard to their spiritual life, with regard to their relationship with God, he mediated for them. Have you ever felt lost? Have you ever felt alienated? Have you ever felt uh, misunderstood? Well, if that's true, you need a priestly shepherd. You need someone who can advocate for you, someone who could, who could, who could speak on your behalf. Remember, at some point, yeah, I think it was Exodus 17, God wanted to just smite Israel and start over because they were such complainers. And Moses interceded for them. It says, you promised you were going to take care of them. He's a mediator, but he was also a leader. So they needed a priestly shepherd, but they also needed a prophetic shepherd, like sort of Ezekiel or Isaiah. And what does a prophetic shepherd do? He leads God's 
people, but he leads them by teaching them God's law. He leads them by pointing them to God's salvation. He leads them by pointing them to the king that would come and save them from their sins and save them from themselves. And that leads to the third kind of shepherd that they need. So they need a, a priestly shepherd, but they, and they need a prophetic shepherd, but they also needed a kingly shepherd like David. Right? What does a king do in the ancient Near East when, when I say that? Um, basically, a king rules his people and a king defends his people. And I think a lot of times in the United States, we, we don't really have a lot of connection with a king, right? You know, 240 or so years ago, we, we told the king to stick it. We didn't want to have anything to do with that. And we're all about democracy. But what's interesting is I think you need a king more than you understand and m more than you know. Yeah, Richard Lovelace wrote um, several books. He was a teacher at Gordon-Conwell. And basically, in his Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he said this. He said that the longing of every human heart is righteous government. Think about that. The longing of every human heart is a righteous government. I think he's right. If you look around at our political divide in the United States right now, what is it really about? It's about people on the left who long for a righteous government, at least righteous in as much as they understand righteousness to be. Maybe that's taking care of the poor. Maybe that's, that's being um, any number of, of things, being sensitive to race issues, being sensitive to, to gender issues, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's a conservative who, who longs for a righteous government. You know, maybe you, you look at that more in terms of economics and more in terms of, of taking care of people by giving them jobs. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is if the longing of every human heart is a righteous government, that means we need someone who can run a righteous government. And clearly, we haven't found that yet. That's not a criticism of our current president or the one became before him or the 45 that came before him. It's the fact is, is they're all sinners. You can only have a righteous government if you have a righteous king. Jesus is that righteous king. You see, David, when you think about the kings in Israel, the, the kings, a kingly shepherd, David was called the shepherd of Israel, not because he was visiting people in the hospital. David was called the shepherd of Israel because he was putting goats in the hospital. In other words, the enemies of Israel, he was dispatching and he was providing for them. He's protecting them and he was ruling them righteously. We need a king like that. You see, all if you could have all three of those, if you could have a, the perfect priestly shepherd and you could have the perfect prophetic shepherd and you could have the perfect uh, kingly shepherd, that almost by definition would mean you would have a good shepherd. Well, 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 what does Jesus call himself? Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? What does the good priestly shepherd do? The good prophetic shepherd, the good kingly shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, the, the, the zealots wanted Jesus to come and throw, you know, orchestrate an uprising and lead them in taking the lives of all of their enemies. And Jesus came as the good shepherd and says, I give my life for my enemies. That's the kind of shepherd you need. And so he had compassion on them and he taught them. But not only did they need a good shepherd, they needed sustenance practically speaking. I mean, like literally needed something to eat. And that's where the text goes next. Notice verse 35. It says, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. 
And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. So think about what's happening here. Jesus, the, the disciples are probably surprised. They get there and there are thousands of people waiting for them. Jesus teaches them. He's sort of on the side of a hill, I think, is, is how it's described in the other Gospels. Which, by the way, this is the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. And so he's teaching, he, he's teaching them, and the day is getting long, and now it's starting to get dark, and the disciples are noticing that no one has any food. And people are going to start getting cranky, and they're afraid things are going to get out of hand. And so the disciples act rationally, and they act wisely, frankly. I mean, they look at the situation. We have... We don't have any money. There's 5,000 plus people here that need to have something to eat. They haven't eaten all day. It's getting into the night. And so they go and tell Jesus, hey, you need to wrap it up. Because you can wrap it up, then they can go into town. They can buy themselves something to eat. And there won't be any problems here. And instead of like acknowledging that and saying, wow, guys, thank you for being so thoughtful. That's right. I bet you like that these people are really getting hungry. Instead of like de-escalating the situation, Jesus escalates the situation. In other words, he raises the temperature. Instead of, instead of saying, wow, that's a good idea. All right, you got them done. Peace out. Think about that. Catch you tomorrow. He says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now, if you're a disciple and you've seen Jesus cast out demons and you've seen Jesus calm the sea and you've seen him raise the dead, you've got to be thinking, what else can he throw at us? Thousands of people, no money, no food, you give them something to eat. And the disciples don't know what to do with themselves. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii is like a year's wages for one person. So the disciples don't have that kind of money. And it's clearly, it's a rhetorical question. But something um, to notice here is that the disciples focus on what they lack, but Jesus focuses on what they actually have, which we do that all the time problem comes up and you say, oh, I don't have enough money. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have anything. What do you have? You know, a lot of times um, young guys, it's typically guys. I, don't, I can't remember a woman ever asking me. Um, typically young guys will come up to me and say, hey, I'm interested in woodworking. What do I need to start doing that? And if you're just watching this for the first time, I do a little bit of woodworking. And I will always say the same thing when they ask me, what do I need to start doing woodworking? And I always say, what do you have? And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I'll say, well, you're going to need tools. What tools do you have right now? Give a drill? And they'll say, yeah, I got a drill. I mean, most guys who, who have any, if they, that live on their own or with their wife someplace, they have a drill. They have some kind of saw or circular saw. Like, you start talking to them and they'll say, well, I actually do have enough things to start. Maybe not enough stuff to build the Ark of the Covenant right now, but I got enough stuff to start. Jesus focuses on uh, possibilities here. I don't, I don't want to sound like a health and wealth preacher, but the disciples are like, it's impossible. And Jesus is saying, well, what do we have to work with here? And what's unspoken here is almost Jesus saying, here's the deal. Let's start with what we, you have and I'll provide the rest. So what do you have? What can you scrape up among yourselves? We know from John's account of this, that they found a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. Right, and imagine this little boy, like big old disciples come up to you, hey kid, what are you doing with your lunch? He's like, here sir! You know, like, what, what is he gonna do? They find a little boy, five loaves, two fishes, of course he's gonna give it to them if they ask. And that leads to the last point, the need for satisfaction. What is Jesus gonna do with five loaves and 
two fishes. And these weren't big loaves, I imagine. They were small. And it says in verse 39, it says, He commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and all who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And I think Matthew's version says 5,000 men besides the women and children. So there are more than 5,000. And so what is happening here? Well, first, verse 39 and 40 says he commanded them to sit down into groups in green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And every commentator that I've read says that this is an allusion to uh, back in the book of Numbers when Moses split up Israel so he could shepherd them better. Remember Jethro came to, to Moses in Exodus 18 and basically said, hey, you're going to kill yourself by doing this. He says, you need to break people down by thousands and by hundreds and by tens, fifties and by tens. And so in some sense, that's probably what Jesus is doing. This is, this is an allusion to God providing bread in the wilderness for Israel. And here this Jesus is doing it. And also, as a side note, that's probably how they knew there were 5,000 people. Like, I always wonder, you know, when you see uh, something happening, like the Million Man March or something, like how do they count the people in the, in the plaza at, in Washington at the mall? Well, here, they were broken down into groups of 50. And, well, sitting down in groups of hundreds and by 50s, they could just look out and say, oh, there's 10 groups of, of 50. You know, that's 5,000 people or 500 people, you know, etc. Either way. So Jesus... Um, breaks them down into these these groups and he blessed the bread he broke it and he gave it right that language should sound familiar to you if you're a christian if you've been in church very much he says taking the five loaves to fish he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he broke it every sunday while we're here in church personal in person we do the same thing we take bread we look to heaven we bless it and we break it. In other words, what is happening here at this great feast for all these people is really a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. During the Last Supper, Jesus would take bread and he would bless it and he would break it. And in some sense, this is this mir- This is a great miracle in Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? He breaks it and he distributes it all. I don't know what that would have looked like. You know, did he just keep breaking it off and it just kept coming? I, I don't know, but it did. However, it actually pointed to a greater miracle, if you will. It pointed to a a greater feast. If you remember John chapter 6, in this account of, uh, John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says they come by force to make him king, right? Those are the zealots. They want to make Jesus the one who's going to take over for them. And they, they escape. And the next day they find Jesus. And they basically say, give us more of that bread that you gave us yesterday. And you hear what Jesus says to them. Jesus says, I am the bread. In fact, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds upon me will never be hungry again. In other words, this bread that Jesus is giving them only points to something else. It points to a different bread. And the bread that it points to is him. Jesus is the feast. Jesus is the one we need in order to be satisfied. Did you notice it said they all ate and were satisfied? It doesn't say that they were full. It says that they were satisfied. Those are two different things. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you long for love? Do you long for approval? Do you long for joy? Do you long for community? Do you long for some kind of satisfaction in life that you're just not getting? 
that you don't, you don't understand what it is you are missing, I promise you it is Jesus. That Jesus is the, the family you are looking for. Jesus is the, provides the love you're looking for. He provides the joy you are looking for. If you're not a Christian, have you ever thought about giving him a try? If you are a Christian, um, the question is, what's coming between you and him now to keep you from being satisfied? You see, you can be full without being satisfied. And what I mean by that, if you think about man versus food again, that guy, I, I don't know if I ever finished an episode. Because I remember there was one episode where he had to eat like 170 dozen oysters. And by the time he gets through like half of them, he just looks ill and it just looks disgusting and he's just shoving those things down and you know what he is full but he's not satisfied in fact he's full and he's sick he's full and he feels disgusting when you are satisfied as you think about it when you are satisfied you could always have a little bit more you always want a little bit more you know my wife makes us this unbelievable uh, gumbo and actually we had leftovers last night and I had a big bowl of it she says I'm left in here do you want it and I instinctively said I could eat more, but I'm satisfied. I don't need more right now. You see, if you are satisfied with Jesus, there is a sense in which you feel uh, satisfied, but you also have this sense that you could always use a little bit more. You would always like a little bit more. You wouldn't turn some down. So let me end with this question. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Are you satisfied? with him. Do, do, do you feel loved, accepted, joy, um, forgiveness, but you also want more of him? Think about that. Let me end by reading the last part of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, well, Jesus did many miracles like this, things people thought couldn't happen that weren't natural, but it was the most natural thing in all the world. It's what God had been doing from the very beginning, of course taking the nothing and making it everything, taking the emptiness and filling it up, taking the darkness and making it light. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would just bless us and keep us in the knowledge and the satisfaction of knowing that Jesus has given himself for us, that he is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep, and he is also the bread of life that whoever may feast upon him will never be hungry again. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Let me finish today by telling you, um, number one, thank you for your giving. Um, at this point in the service, we would be having a musical meditation. Um, typically, we would do an offering plate if it wasn't in the middle of a pandemic. Right now, we do our giving in, in a box. If you're present, if you want to continue to mail checks in or do that digitally, thank you so much for supporting the ministry. Um, so at this point, as we end this virtual service, I thought I would end with a profession of faith that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it's actually three questions today, but they're all short. So question 24 says this, how is Christ a prophet? Answer, as a prophet, Christ reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by his word and spirit. Next question, how is Christ a priest? As a priest, Christ offered himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God, and he continually intercedes for us. Question, how is Christ a king? As a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Amen. Let me send you from this virtual place saying that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
go from this virtual place in the peace of that knowledge. Amen and amen.